but myself being a woman of color sort of felt like I was missing in this study going, where are the women like me? You know, I'm here, so I know I can't be the only one. All right. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. I'm so excited to be speaking today with Kimberly Martinez Phillips, who is incredible. Listen to this bio here. Kimberly has a bachelor's degree in both cultural anthropology and criminology, a master's in sociology, and has been teaching sociology courses in colleges and universities for over 24 years. She is currently a doctoral candidate at Memorial University in Newfoundland and Labrador. Her dissertation studies single, never married, child-free women of color. Previous to her working academia, she was a program director, jury consultant, local evaluator, safety educator, and health educator working in extremely diverse communities. So, Wow. And welcome, Kimberly. Thank you, Anna. It's a pleasure to be here. It sounds more impressive, I think, to others than to myself. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's very impressive. I mean, two bachelors, oh, a master's, you. working on your PhD, teaching, mm-hmm. plus all of your background work before academia. Yeah. yeah. That's actually one of the things I think I'm the most proud of because now having the last three years or so immersed myself in obtaining my doctorate that the variety of jobs and employment opportunities that I've had has really helped inform the way I approach academia which I think for people who come straight out of high school to college to graduate school to postgraduate you know they don't have that perspective and, and so I think it's really made a difference for me that I realize there are worse things to do than <laughs> to write a paper, right? So it's been a really interesting curve for me in my life trajectory and also in doing my research because I have found many of my participants I've interviewed have also similarly done a later in life career shift. Oh, that's really cool. Was yeah, that a surprise maybe. to find? In a way, yes, because I wasn't really expecting it. You know, it yeah. wasn't something that I thought, oh, I'm going to see all these women who have done these later in life. And later in life doesn't mean like 56 or 80, but it uh, around 30, 35, they may have been going in one direction, all of a sudden decided, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to do something else. And many of them stated the reason they were able to do that was because they were not married and did not have children. And so they had the freedom of being able to make a sort of risky choice or a career shift around 38, around 40, around 35. And had they been taking care of small children or had been taking care of, you know, teenagers, they may not have been able to do that. And they were very, very aware of that. Yeah. Oh, wow. I want to definitely get into your research more, but I'm curious to start with your own personal backstory. How did you decide to be child-free and what did that look like for you? Was it a a decision? Maybe that's not the right way to to say it. Yes, it's interesting. I sort of went into this thinking I would find people who had similar decisions than I had, and some, some did. But what I mostly found was that for many people to not be married was not quote a decision, Mm. but to not have children was very much a decision. And like myself, I sort of knew I didn't want to have children around the age of 12. Oh, wow. And I remember distinctly having that conscious thought, like, I'm not doing this. And I always thought I was so odd. Like, who thinks about that at 12? And I was never the kind of kid who played with Barbie. Well, actually, I take that back. I did play with Barbies, but I never played with baby dolls. I Mm. never did the kind of play rolling of being a mother. So I never carried a baby doll around. I never wanted to change a baby doll's diaper. I did not babysit very much, if at all, maybe like a handful of times. And again, I kind of thought, wow, I'm a weird kid, right? Because... I just thought, no, I'm not having children. And then to pick that up 45 years later to find out many of these women that I've met so far 
also knew very early on, they did not want to have children. I'm talking eight years old, nine years old, 12 years old, 15 years old. And so for me, it was about family dynamics. It wasn't necessarily about resources. So for some people, it will be in my study. It, it was about family dynamics. It was about not wanting to duplicate patterns. It was about thinking, am I going to be able to do this well? And if I can't do it well, maybe I shouldn't do it. And then also thinking that maybe there's something out there that I want to do besides this. Not that it was bad. Not that I had a horrible childhood. Not that I saw mothering as this horrible sort of plot in life, but it was just not sort of my calling. Yeah, that's super interesting. Thinking about my own experience hearing yours, it's like, yeah, I don't really think I played with baby dolls either, but that wasn't something that I would have picked out for myself as inter- like unique. Or And also I did babysit, but I was so anxious about it. And I had like a cutoff. If diapers were involved, it was too much of a responsibility for me. Now, looking back, I'm like, oh, I came to this decision at the age of 32 or realization, I guess. And I just thought I was weird, you know, like all those things like, well, why am I so anxious around children under the age of like two or three? And like, why can't I get over it? Um, Those kinds of thoughts. Yeah, I think and I think the more we talk about it and the more this conversation is able to be had in a public sphere women will start to realize they're not odd. A lot of women I spoke to thought they were odd. I thought I was odd. And I'm probably maybe a generation older than you, but when when I was a kid, they had all these toys that kind of were prepping us for us this like patriarchal kind of heteronormative world, like the toy vacuum cleaner. And I remember even as a kid thinking, why would I want to play like I'm vacuuming? Like, that's not fun. Are they trying to make this fun? Are they trying to indoctrinate us into with our little like play ovens, our little play kitchens and the play vacuum cleaner just took it over the edge for me. Like even to this day, I hate vacuuming Mm -hmm. and uh, you know, all the baby dolls and and all the kind of accoutrement that goes with baby dolls. And I just didn't want anything to do with it. Again, I didn't really think of it at the time. I mean, I was probably like six, seven, five-ish at the time, but again, around 12, 13 by freshman year in high school, I very much recall having this distinctive thought that, yeah, my life's not going in that direction. Wow. That is really, really cool. And I I just enjoy so much hearing people's sort of experiences and their, even, you know, those little clues that we uncover maybe later in life that were there all along with this. Yeah. It's been, you know, sort of me still being a new scholar that I, I still find it very rewarding and very, just, you know, like, ah, spine tingling when I'll have someone tell me, oh, no one's ever asked me that question, or I've never thought of it that way before. And it's like, great, we're getting you to think of things in a way that maybe you hadn't thought of before. And it's, it's obviously helping me with my research. And I hope in some weird way, it's helping them as well, maybe connect those dots that sometimes we don't connect until, or if we're being really introspective or we go to therapy or we sit down and go, yeah, why did I go down this road instead of this one? Right. Yeah. And your research, you focus a lot, not just on child-free women, but also single women and most recently single women, single child-free, never married women of color. Yeah, I'm still working on an acronym because it's a real big like <laughs> mouthful to try and get that all in. But the reason it's important to get that all in because there have been many studies about singleness and single women, but you can be someone who was married, divorced, and then are single, right? So there are a lot of single women who had been married that are still in that category. And then there are a lot of studies about single motherhood and and women who are single, again, maybe had been married, but are currently single and are mothers in their lives and and the difficulty that is. And so when I started doing my own research to be able to, to do the research that I'm doing now, I was realizing, well, what about this kind of single, always been single, never married group? Have they ever been looked at separately? has this group been separated and said, why did they not marry? I think the person who gets married 
gets divorced, gets married again, gets divorced, that's a different group of someone who has never married at all. Doesn't mean one's right or wrong, good or bad. It's just, it's a different sort of group. And then when I started looking into the child-free, I realized a lot of the research is lumping women and other people who are child-free with child-less. Mm. And I know that's a distinction that a lot of people may not understand or, or know why that should be a distinction. So child-less typically, typically refers to people who wanted to have children and for whatever reason they could not. So whether that be fertility problems, whether it be financial problems, whether it be, you know, being raised in a war zone, but that they're childless because circumstances, whether they be biological or environmental, they were not able to do that. Child free, hence the free, is sort of people who did not want to have children. So these are people, and my study is about women who did not want to have children. So it's not as if they wanted to have children, they tried to have children, then they couldn't, and then they decided, okay, this is where I'm at. These are women who, again, many of them knew very early on, they didn't want children. It was just not the road they wanted. And they've hit all the pitfalls as some other people of being told there's something wrong with them or being told they'll change their mind later. But this group of women is growing and also the acknowledgement that these women have always been throughout history, you know, th these women have always existed, whether they be nuns or women who had these jobs that were considered noble, like teachers or, 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 or people who took care of wealthy children and nannies, and they never had children their own. Who knows if we were able to do a study with those women, many of them probably would have said, we didn't want to have children. Yes. Maybe it was the other way around. Maybe I didn't have children because I came, became a nun. Maybe I came, became a nun because I didn't want to have children and there was nothing else I could do at the time. So, so acknowledging that this isn't necessarily a new phenomena, but it is a growing one. And for me, adding just, you know, layer on top of layer on top of layer, it being an intersectional study of also realizing that when I was going through the literature, the majority of studies that are done, whether it be on singleness or whether it be on child-free, child-less women, often were on white women. And again, nothing wrong with that. Those experiences are just as important to, to get to and, and to understand as anyone else's. But myself being a woman of color sort of felt like I was missing in this study going, where are the women like me? You know, I'm here. So I know I can't be the only one. There's got to be other women out there. And why haven't these studies gotten to that population? And having spoken with my supervisors and we decided, yeah, let's do this. Let's focus only on women of color, which again, can be a huge, broad category. So this includes, you know, that whole swath of whether it be an indigenous woman, uh, African-American, black woman, Hispanic, Latina, Latinx, Asian, Southeast, you know, so the whole swath of women are kind of encompassed in that. But again, and what's great for me is having met some of these amazing women is seeing the commonalities of their experiences. And, and so that's just what I hope to do, not to say any other study who's done similar work is, is not well needed, because of course it is. It's just this is the little kind of part of the puzzle that I'm hoping to feel. Yeah, yeah. I think that, like, thank you for your work. I think it is really needed to to uplift like this portion too and really represent them in the research as well and because this hasn't this hasn't been done before you're kind of a pioneer in this particular area oh well thank you i don't want to get you know i'm sure there are people out there going wait a minute you know, <laughs> like, I don't get to you know I don't own a horse. I'm not that high up there. <laughs> there have been many, many people who have studied these issues. But like I said, what, what I'm trying to do, which, you know, I'll try to say, yes, it may be a little different. I'll own that. And I, hopefully I'll be happy to, is, is that kind of combining of these categories of, of these sort of seeing intersectionally, how being never married, being single, being child-free, and also being a woman of color how do those all kind of intersect to 
shape the experiences of these women and what can we learn from them? So what can we learn from them? Because again, this is becoming a more common phenomena. Mm -hmm. A lot of the women I spoke to also had other friends that were also never married or child-free. And why are women either A, making these choices or environmental factors are leading them in this direction now? And yeah. that's something I think that has a, a multifaction sort of answer to it. And I hope that when my research is done, I'll be able to answer some of those questions. Okay. So from our previous conversation, I understand that you have been spending this month uh, specifically coding your research um, that you just finished for your dissertation on the child-free, never married, single women of color. I'm curious, as you are doing that coding, obviously, like, I don't want to um, ask about things you're not ready to share, but are there things emerging from the data that you are able to share at this point? Sure, sure. And also for anyone out there who is a researcher, academic or research nerd, they're probably well aware. I, I'm not as well aware because again, this is my first sort of foray into doing my own qualitative study myself, design myself and doing all the work. And some of the interviews, I started interviewing in January of 2022 and I finished my last interview in June. So I was going to take all my interviews, put them into the software program and thinking, okay, I'm ready to go. And as I was doing that, I realized, well, some of these interviews I did six months ago. Am I familiar enough with these interviews to be able to do this? I made the decision. I'm going to go back and I'm going to rewatch each interview. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. And I have the transcripts, thankfully. So I have the transcripts and I'm going through and making sure the transcripts are accurate. And in doing that, I'm also, you know, listening again with a sort of a little hindsight after now completing all the interviews and pulling out some quotes and pulling out some information that I think I will end up using later when I get deeper into the coding. And I'm sort of almost halfway through that process. So this is again, processes within processes within processes that can get a little boring to listen to. But what I can tell you is that I am seeing an interesting sort of dynamic start to emerge and some commonalities and personality traits, which is not necessarily my focus, but again, just of interest that, that women who did not have similar backgrounds necessarily, did not have similar upbringings in terms of family dynamics, but that they had similar reactions to their environment or similar sort of decision-making once they were put into a certain circumstance. And so that's interesting of how these women started going down that road when they came from different places, but they sort of all made the same turn, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so figuring out why, you know, why did they make that turn? What is about them? And so that goes more to the psych uh, psychosocial sort of part of kind of studying this. But then also what I'm finding really interesting is now the more I get deeper and deeper into this is that a lot of these women, if there was a commonality in background, it wasn't whether they were abused or not, or, or parents were still married or not, but many of them had very strict upbringings. Some of them, it was because of religious upbringing, some of it because their parent was not wanting them to get pregnant and really enforced that in them. Some, it was just about, we live in a neighborhood or a part of a community where we're fearful for you. And some was cultural. They just had very culturally strict upbringings. And so this kind of idea of rebelling, but not against parents, not against like, I'm going to go out and get drunk and, you know, do all this crazy stuff that we often associate with quote rebelling, but rebelling against restriction, rebelling against feeling confined. Many of these women have talked about they value freedom. They value peace of mind. They value having flexibility in their life. And so this idea that they're not tethered to things or people, most of them are not, do not report themselves to be materialistic. It's not about accumulating a lot of things. They want to be able to pick up and go when they want to pick up and go. They don't want decisions to be made for them. And again, it's like some people go, oh, well, that sounds really selfish. But these are women who said, no, it would be selfish for me to be in a relationship or, or have children knowing that's not sort of where I 
excel and where I'd be happy. For example, I have one of my participants, I just rewatched her interview the other day, is what they call a digital nomad. And because their work is all digital, they can live wherever they want. And so she literally for the last six years or so has just lived in Colombia for three months and then she'll go to Peru for three months and then she'll go to Spain for three months. And I thought, I didn't even know that profession existed. So I was really interested by that. But also realizing that is the kind of life that we typically only think of men having Mm. and a woman doing it, particularly a woman of color doing it. It's like, what? How are you able to maneuver this? Don't you have family you have to take care of? That was the life she wanted. That was the life she was able to carve out for herself. And many of these other women have similarly in different ways been able to carve out a life that allows them the freedom that they very much value. And so I don't see that for also for myself and, and for the women, I would defend that. That's not about selfishness. It's about what do you value? And then creating a life that allows you to live those values. Yeah. And I mean, listening to you talk and hearing, you know, what you're finding and also the fact that you are intentionally focused on women of color who don't have, you know, the privileges that come with being white and the things that make it easier, maybe when you're white to do some of those things. I'm just sitting here thinking like, wow, these women have really carved out a vision for themselves. And just, I don't even know what to describe the characteristics that that takes to to yeah. see that and go forward and, and bring it into reality for themselves. Right. And that's where, you know, the psychosocial dynamics are so interesting to me and, and present, but I'll be focusing more on sort of the patriarchal aspects and the resistance mm. to that. Yeah. And many of these women, like I said, they're varied in terms of where they came from and also where they see themselves going in the future. Many of them have said they are still open to being married. They're not against being married, but only if marriage could be within that sort of context that they would thrive in. But again, for your topic that uh, the door is closed to having children and many of them, the door never really opened. I think one woman reported that way, like, no, that, that door never even really opened for me. So Many of them, as they've gotten older, because everyone I interviewed was between 36 and 61. Mm. So everyone I interviewed had lived the majority of their childbearing years without having children purposely. And some of them had, you know, like, well, let me check it out and see if I can do it. Some of them did go to fertility clinics to see, is it still viable? And again, it wasn't that they wanted to have children. It was almost that curiosity factor that, well, if I am going to make this decision, if it is a decision, I kind of need to have some information before I can really do that. And and so again, a handful actually did go to a fertility clinic to a doctor and say, Let, let's talk about this. Uh, but many of them never did. And what I hope work like yours, your, your podcast, other podcasts, uh, my research is to dispel that myth. And I think it's happening, but it, it just takes more of us out there and talking about it more. This idea that whether you are child free or and never married, that we're sort of these like sad, bitter, angry old women who no one ever chose us. No one ever wanted us. We, we were so selfish. We couldn't raise our own children. Uh, most of these women are gloriously happy <laughs> and I thought their lives were all like puppies and <laughs> you know daffodils but they were able to live their life on their terms and that they do not regret their choices and they do not regret not having children and many of them talk about yes I know I'm going to grow old alone so those are concerns I have but they tackle that like any other thing in life and they go I'm putting extra savings away because I know it's just going to be me and then you'll have women who will say, yeah, I'm not really worried about that. I mean, if you have no children, you don't have to have life insurance, right? You're not leaving anything to anybody. And <laughs> so it kind of, again, creates that free space of, well, the money that other people are putting away for life insurance for their spouse or for their children, maybe I can go on holiday with that. And so again, it's just really interesting. It's, I hope will be significant down the road. But these are women who are living in a time and a space that that allows them in some ways to do this, that the women in the past did not have. 
And what will that mean and bode for the future of marriage, patriarchy, kind of this idea that women are here to be breeders, especially living, I'm sure you are cognizant as well, in this very 2022 space of Roe v. Wade being overturned and many people wanting us to almost go back to a women are only here to be breeders mentality. Yeah. That if you're not breeding, somehow you're not fulfilling a purpose. And that's terrifying to a lot of women, whether they are having children or not having children, just this idea that your, your purpose is being defined by your biology and your usefulness is being defined on your ability to have children by people that know nothing about you who have no part of your lives and they're they're in a government house somewhere whether in a state it's federal government and and so i think this is something that you're seeing galvanize women whether they were pro-choice originally or not you know there are a lot of women out there that would say they were pro-life but this has gone too far like this has absolutely gone too far. So I think, again, it's that idea of a woman's body defining what her purpose in society should be, which really is just chill inducing of, wait, what's going on here? What are we doing? And I haven't felt this myself, but some research circles, you know, there's this kind of child-free child nest and they don't necessarily always feel like they are on the same page with each other. I think this kind of uh, political climate in where we're right now is going to band people together and say, for whatever choices, whatever reasons, whatever circumstances you're in, whether having children, not having children, this is something we sort of have to realize that this is a danger to all of us. Oh, I know my stomach is just like turning over, especially in light of yesterday's news, the time of this recording with Lindsey Graham introducing that nationwide 15-week ban. Yeah, um, I really... I appreciate what you just said there about that this can be an opportunity and maybe already is an opportunity for us to band together no matter where we fall and align on this topic and fight for women to have autonomy over their own bodies and their life. Of course, it's nothing to make light of, but I, and and I don't know how political you want to get, so you can always cut this out if you don't want to keep it in, but um, I was one of those people, naive people that I was absolutely certain Hillary Clinton was going to be the next president in 2016. I was absolutely certain. Like I had my party favors ready to go. I was going to stay up all night. I was teaching. So I told my students that I was supposed to have class the next day. And I already told them we're not having class tomorrow because either I'm going to be up all night celebrating or I'm going to be too depressed to get out of bed. Yeah. So I'm just going to let that be known right now. We're not having class tomorrow. And I really thought that I'd be celebrating. I thought that I would be up crying and just watching all these things about finally a female president and how many women older than I, other generations have worked so hard to make this happen and be able to have this happen. And then it was just like this black curtain came down in the most oppressive of ways. And I literally just had to go to bed because I couldn't watch it anymore. As soon as I realized how this was turning, already been thinking I'm again now that I realize that I was able to think about making life choices because I was not married and did not have children so I had been teaching for 20 some odd years and I was getting to the point you know that kind of proverbial midlife crisis of is this it is this what I'm going to be doing for the next 20 years of my life and I had always thought about going back to school but there were a couple factors that prevented that from happening literally once Trump got elected it was like I have to do something I felt as if I understood what was coming, what the future was coming. And I was like, I'm not going to get caught behind the wall. Mm. So I decided I had wanted to go back and get my PhD. I've always wanted to live outside the country. I'm going to use this as an opportunity to do both. Literally, like as soon as that happened, like within that year, um, I started looking into research. I started, you know, I picked some countries. I started figuring out the immigration process, the student process, the universities. And long story short, I moved to Canada in 2019. So it shows like I made a plan. I decided what country I wanted to live in. I decided what university I wanted to go to a couple. I applied. I was accepted. You know, that's like a whole year process right there. Then making the planning to move. And I was in California. I was living in Los Angeles, California. 
So basically moving across the entire continent with two cats. And so, so that was a, you know, six plus month planning process right there. But again, now that I realized that I had the ability to do that because of the life I had been living. Mm. And so when I watched The Handmaid's Tale then and now, it's like, yeah, I took it not as a fictional, like cautionary tale. I took it as sort of like a roadmap. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to Canada now. <laughs> so it's like when the walls go up, I'm already here. Yeah. So, If we need to start doing an underground railroad, I can help with that. (laughs) I think it's really interesting. Everything you just shared there of Trump becoming president and how you took that as time to lay out a plan and go to Canada, like find where you wanted to be living and, and doing it. Hey listener, I have an ambitious goal and I can't really do it without you. I'm working to create a global network of child-free people and I have benefited so much from connecting with you and other child-free individuals around the world through this podcast and also through Instagram. I want you all to get to benefit from similar connections, which is why I started We're Not Kidding the Club. It's a free community, private from trolls and bots and other social media platforms, and just a dedicated space to come together as child-free people across the world, network, build relationships, and celebrate all that this child-free life has to offer. So if you're up for helping me, I'd love for you to be a part of the community because it can't be a global network without you in it. If you're curious and want to check it out, head to wnk-club.com. One more time, wnk-club.com. C-L-U-B.com. Can't wait to see you in the club. So before your dissertation, you did research on single women portrayed in films, but not just like American films. You took a more global perspective, trying to find films from different countries or different regions and to see, are there commonalities in how this portrayal of the single woman is across cultures? I thought this was super fascinating and I'm curious like what if you wouldn't mind talking about what you discovered there. No, of course, I'm really excited about that project as well and I'm still trying to get this project published which can be a frustration of the academic world, but I ended up deciding while I was finishing my courses that maybe I should be kind of getting a jump start on my research career and why not right and so COVID hit what else was I going to do but watch TV so why don't I use this time so I decided to watch uh, films that had representations of single women and singleness and how they were depicted and and, and decided again create some understanding and some findings of what could we learn from that and some of the things that were interesting to me, first, I made a very conscious decision that I wanted to include films that were about women of color and actually found that very hard to do, that it was surprising to me how few, even today, films there are where a woman of color is the lead character. And then on top of that, she is a single woman. And I also thought I didn't want to focus on just like 10 years or five years or like you know, because I could look at films from 1920s, you know, everything in between. So I thought, let's look at that period of like 1980s to 2000s, or like after the feminist movement, and after we so called had made progress. Yeah. So most of my films cover from that 1980s kind of John Hughes era into the 2000, I think 2017, I think maybe was the last of the films, the last date I had. And so in wanting to include women of color and finding that difficult, I decided, why am I just including American films or Hollywood films? So I ended up including a film from Nigeria. I ended up including a film from South Africa. I ended up including a film that was produced in, in, and primarily based in Great Britain. And I included a film that was made in Spain. And that was to, again, allow for more diversity. I didn't want to do just the typical Hollywood rom-coms. So, you know, it would have been easy to do, well, I don't say easy. 
but it, it would have been one thing to just say, I'm just going to do rom-coms, right? And then you can really kind of compare and contrast and sort of work within that sphere. But what I wanted to see is how is singleness being portrayed in media, in film, the medium generally. And so when you just look at rom-coms, you're getting a very specific kind of plot. You're usually getting a very specific kind of character. Mm. And so I included femme fatale movies. I included rom-coms. I included, you know, chick buddy movies. I included cop movies. I included everything that would give you sort of, you know, dramas and uh, period pieces. I have two period pieces in there. Kind of a fuller context of how single women are, are being viewed in these films. And out of the 20, what I found was that there were these themes that emerged and these themes were there, whether the film was made in America or South Africa or Nigeria or Spain or anywhere else. And of course, I, I would have to do a lot more films to get a better idea of that. But this idea of single women either being depicted as sad and pathetic is still very much part and parcel of how women are depicted in film. And then also the another interesting theme that came out is that women who are single for whatever reason are often depicted as being mentally ill or being mm. crazy in some way. And you know, women who can't take care of themselves, women who are on the fringes of society, women who need sort of extra additional assistance. I mean, there was all these kind of ways in which this was alluded to that these are women who maybe are not making the best decisions for themselves. So maybe other people should be making these decisions for them. And I also found that there were an interesting dynamic of that women were often forced to choose between femininity and autonomy. So it was this idea that if you were going to choose this kind of single life, that you were being viewed in a more masculine way, you were being viewed in a more sort of unappealing way to men. And that that was sort of a choice you were going to have to make. And uh, again, I found this within the African films. I found this within the Hollywood film. I feel very proud of this project and I'm working, you know, revisions, 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 trying to give people what they want so, so people can read it. Because I find it really interesting that some of the same stories that you will see in a Hollywood rom-com, you'll see in a South African rom-com or you'll see yeah. in a rom-com. And so these things that we think our cultures are so different, but in this regard, they're very, very much the same. And it was funny, as I was doing this work and I was sort of working on the results of this, I think it was around Christmas time. And I remember trying to find something to watch on Netflix, like most of us. And there was all these like Christmas movies that had just been dropped on Netflix. And it was all this idea about, someone's coming home from the holidays and they're single and oh people are going to ask some questions and then oh this person's single and they're going home from the holidays so they don't want to get questions so they're going to ask a friend to come home and pretend to be their boyfriend or girlfriend and I was like are we still doing this like this is 2020 and we're still doing this that is this really what single people are worried about going home for the holidays and people I mean it was just nothing it was so antithetical to what I had already read and knew about this group of people I thought, who is making these movies and who are they making them for? Yeah. Because, yeah, there are people who are single, usually, again, younger, who are thinking, I want to be in a relationship and maybe holidays is a difficult time. But to have 20 movies all with the same plot? <laughs> right. <laughs> like, oh, no, I don't have someone to bring home. Oh, no, what am I going to do? I, I just, I, I was just sort of like, I, it was like I wanted... I wanted to call the manager like who do I talk to about this like how many of these movies do we need like yeah honestly, how many of the I mean I could do a study just on those type of movies of either not knowing where to go for Christmas Thanksgiving or hunting because I don't have a partner and I think that speaks to the bias towards singleness the you know holidays are set up for families quote couples and if you're not you are seen as somebody who sort of has to either be, you know, oh, we're, we're sorry for you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it's just not what a lot of modern women are experiencing in their own lives. I know for myself personally, I've spent a lot of Christmases in Europe. And the idea was, yeah, maybe for myself being home and not doing anything in terms of like having parties to go to. I was like, yeah. Or I can go to Greece for Christmas. 
And because I don't have children, I can do that because I don't have to worry about wrapping anyone's presents and being there. And because I can afford to do that. And so I've spent Christmases in Norway and Greece and London and Spain and Scotland. And those are experiences I will cherish forever. And so when I'm seeing a preview for a movie of this person who's like, I can't go home for the holidays without, I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, What universe are we still living in? So, so there's so much to unpack. With, with how the how film and TV and other mediums to still depict this group. And uh, I, like I said, I would love to do more work in that in that regard of watching TV shows and films and all that kind of thing, because I grew up with Thelma and Louise. And I thought as a teenager, after we had that kind of like feminist kind of burn the house down and go out with a blaze of glory kind of you know sentiment, that we would have many more films in that sort of vein. And maybe we've had a couple, Mm. but you know, to be in 2022 and still having movies about like, oh, I have to go home for the holidays. I need a boyfriend. (laughs) I honestly, I I did not think we would still be having those movies made. I really did not. Yeah, I completely agree. And I find that storyline a little bit nauseating. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And you are living like my dream, which is. (laughs) It just occurred to me this year, um, I'm 34 and only as a 34 year old realized, oh my gosh, my partner and I, we could go, we could go to Europe for Christmas. Like we don't need to stay in the States. And so like, this is now something we're actively working towards. I don't think this is going to be the year we start, but just, I love, I love hearing other people doing that. And it would be great to see, uh, I think films that show single child free or not women doing that like right right and there's all kind of interesting you know troubles and plot points you could get into it's again it's like the these kind of caricatures of what it means to be and again I think film mostly focuses on childless women but this kind of character of what it means to be a woman of a certain age who's not married and and doesn't have children Mm mm-hmm and, and I think we're seeing changes in that, you know, I, of course, we're seeing some changes in that, but not as much as I would have hoped. Yeah. I, I, I want to say, you know, in my lifetime, we're going to make some all of a sudden huge leaps and bounds. And if that's still possible, but you know, I was born right when the feminist movement was happening. I, I kind of, my mother was a feminist, is a feminist. still. She's still alive, thankfully. Um, <laughs> I, I remember hearing conversations about how hard it was for her to get certain jobs or interfields. And I just remember thinking as a teenager in the eighties, like we were going to make this difference and we were going to make these things happen. And then to be, you know, a 53 year old woman and to have Roe v. Wade be overturned basically is, you know, my lifetime, right? 50 year, my lifetime. It's just, where are we going? So I think work like this of focusing on women outside the paradigms of motherhood outside the paradigms of marriage is important that women have a life and a value and a perspective that is unique to themselves regardless of who they are connected to familiarly and just like when we talk about a man we talk often about his profession or what he does like a professional sports figure we don't often say oh, let's talk to Joe, who's a father and who's a husband first. And then we'll talk about what he does. Where with women, we still often are doing that. And also I I noticed in politics, it's a way of how campaigns try to humanize their candidate. Like, oh, she's a mother. She can't be bad, right? Because she's a mother. Right. Bad because she's married. So somebody had to love her, right? Somebody had to choose her. So, you know, if you just think about what those subtle messages are, that if you're humanizing somebody by saying they also happen to give birth or they also happen to raise children, then what are you saying about women who are not doing that and that we're not as humanized, we're not as likable, we're not as approachable, that people don't understand us because, well, we have to know who somebody would love you or you would love somebody before we can kind of relate to you. And I, I think 
at least the women in my study are all sort of dispelling those notions and sort of living really happy, fulfilled, rewarding lives. And also just, I found it really interesting. And this is a thread I'll probably pull on throughout my study a little bit more. I had one of my participants, and this is also great for me as well as when somebody says something, I think, wow, I never thought of it that way. She talked about how she is a nurturing figure for other people. And she said that she never really appreciated or agreed with connecting, nurturing only within motherhood. That people say, well, oh, are those your surrogate children? No, I can be a nurturer without being a mother. Like mothering and being a mother is not the only role that is a nurturing role. And so it's it's sort of for me as a, as a cat lover who when people say, oh, you see a cow playing with a ball and you go, oh, he's acting like a dog. No, he's acting like a cow. Quit putting everything in the perspective of that's how dogs act. And here we're like, well, mothers are nurturers. So if you're nurturing an animal, that's you're being a surrogate mother. If you're nurturing a niece or nephew, you're being a surrogate. No, I'm just being someone who's nurturing. And that's definitely something that, you know, right now it's not fully conceptualized yet in my head, but I think that's something that will be kind of something I pull through that, right, we do often, I think of this idea, which also is not beneficial to men, right? Because we think of nurturing being a mothering thing. And if we disconnect those things, then we realize anyone can be a nurturer. And it doesn't mean that you're craving children because you want to own a pet or have a pet, or if I want to have five pets, or if I want to adopt my tree of squirrels outside my window (laughs) Um, and and I make sure they're fed and I want to take care of them. But that doesn't mean somehow I'm trying to fulfill a mothering need. Yeah. It's really interesting hearing you talk about that. I have noticed in myself sort of a repulsion or I don't know if is that a word? Um, Like, I don't want to be considered nurturing, which is really weird. Yeah. But I think it's not about nurturing. It's about the association between nurturing and being mothering, because I really don't want to be like put in the you're a woman, you should be a mother box. It's not about nurturing, but I have that strong link in my mind. Mm -hmm. So I feel an aversion to being labeled nurturing. Or maybe what you said is correct for a lot of women that they think, well, because I don't want to be a mother, I'm not allowed to be nurturing. Yeah. You kind of fit into that, you know, you, you've put yourself into a role that you think other people want you to play. Like if I'm not going to be a mother, then all of a sudden I must be a non-nurturing person. Right. In fact, I am like when it comes to my niece and nephew or or friends, kids, I really enjoy, you know, nurturing those relationships. I can use it in that way and feel yeah. aligned with it. So, yeah, that was interesting to just notice my own reaction to the terms as you were talking about them. Not something I'd really maybe thought through before. Yeah, we're all allowed to be nurturers if we want to be nurturers. That doesn't mean we also have to be mothers. Right. Yeah, exactly. And um, in my home, I moved to uh, Montreal and and I'm renting a townhome. And in the back, I have a garden, which I never have gardened before. And now I realize like I am nurturing my garden so much. Like every day I go out there, I have to water it every day. I I cut weeds. Doesn't mean I want to be a mother. Totally. (laughs) care of my garden and I love it so I'm taking a break from work I'm like oh I need a break I go out and I like go take care of my garden and I come back in yeah oh I, I'm a gardener too and I just love being in it and and like you said nursery and intending to it there is something that is just so for me very grounding in doing that and I've also seen your Instagram of the squirrels on your sunflowers I love that <laughs> I love it too I just every morning I get to wake up and, and have squirrels running through my backyard. I love it. Like, I absolutely love it. And the cats, and they're working through their relationship. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes they chase them, sometimes they don't. But no, I didn't. I, I mean, who knew I would love it so much, but I do. I love it. 
Oh, that's awesome. I realize it has been an hour, so I don't want to keep you over, but I could just talk to you forever. I love the work you're doing. I find it really important and really interesting also. So thank you. I really uh, admire what you're doing and think it's really valuable. Well, again, just yourself having this podcast, having a forum, a space where women can hear other women talk about being child-free or childless and being single and not be judged. I mean, that is adding to the conversation as well. Thanks. Yeah, I hope so. Actually, one one quick thing I wanted to say earlier was, you know, just so interesting when you were talking about the films and how they portray single, you know, often child-free women or childless women, just single women with that pitied so yeah. I don't know. Is it always defined? Are they child-free or childless? Or are they just like um, single? Yeah. Usually it's, chi- well, I don't say usually. It's often women who haven't found the right person yet to have children. Right. Yeah. yeah. And holding that up <laughs> with your research, but then your other research holding up the fact that, like you said at the beginning of this conversation, you are finding that single child-free women are often very happy and fulfilled. So your work is debunking um, what we see portrayed with data. Right. And, you know, this idea of who gets to define a family is something we've been talking about since same-sex marriages has become legal. And it's a conversation that continuously needs to be had. If you are somebody who has children and you get to take time off work, which you should, to be able to go see your child's soccer game or ballet recital. Maybe I need and want to take time off so I can take my cat to the vet or to do something else. And so who's a family and who gets to define that? Is it only, you know, this kind of 1950s antiquated nuclear family that we are going to allow for sort of some of these allowances? Or is it you and, and, and the people and things and animals that you love and care about and time that you need to take care of those things and people and animals that you love? And is that not also important to you? And uh, I, I think that's going to be a conversation we will continue to have as hopefully the states goes in the direction of having family leave, which is so necessary. I, I think for the people who have children, I, I, you know, my friends who have children, I obviously know people who have children, how important that is to be able to take those times and not feel like my job's going to be risked because yeah. I have to take a child to the doctor. I mean, that's got to be terrifying to think I can't afford that. But at the same time, you'll have people who say, well, should that time only be for this group of people? And if so, are we valuing one lifestyle over another? Mm. And, and I think that's that's going to be tricky to navigate. Yeah. But, you know, studies have all shown that men actually do better at work, get better promotions, get better job uh, as they are married and have children. So whether we acknowledge it, there is subtle and actual practical purposes in which people who are married and have children actually have more benefits at work than people who are single and do not have children. And so as there becomes more of women and men who do not have children and who are not getting married, that's going to be a larger and larger conversation. Right. Yeah. It was actually in one of the films that I watched, it was um, while you were sleeping right? The kind of like Sandra Bullock, I can't remember, I think late 1980s, maybe 90s, early 90s. And no one will recall, but I will because I researched it. Uh, In the beginning of the film, the reason she's working on like Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve, one of those holidays is because she was the only one in the office that was single. Oh, they told her, well, you have to work because you're the only one who doesn't have a family. And it was like, okay, like, you know, it's kind of like, okay, I'll do it because everyone else has a family. Well, then again, that becomes what I said. Who gets to define what a family? Me and my two furry children are my family. Mm-hmm. So if I want to spend Christmas Day with my family, I should have just as much freedom to be able to do that. And you shouldn't be expecting the single woman or man in the office to do the extra work or to stay the extra hours or to work the holidays because, quote, they don't have a family. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, it will be 
interesting to see how, as you said, with more and more people choosing not to have kids, choosing not to get married, how is that reflected in something like family leave? And yeah, is it reflected in that? You know, like, I I hope it will be. But yeah, that will be interesting to see. Yeah, I think it's maybe just a question of semantics instead of calling it family leave, maybe personal time. And, and everybody's allowed a certain amount of personal time. Yeah. Yeah. Seeing that there is maybe in more recent years been more wellness initiatives around mental health days. Mm-hmm. I know that's not universal, in, but hopefully we are trending to more, like you said, terminology that mm-hmm. encompasses more right. people. That's not so natalistic. Yeah, right. I've been taking mental health days for years and I've encouraged my students to do so as well. I I took one just yesterday, actually, you know, not formally, but I'll just wake up and you you have those days where you have your whole day planned out of all the work you need to do or what you plan on achieving. And then for whatever reason, you wake up and you're just like, yeah, no, I feel like this isn't going to happen today. And I can either try and plug through that and, or I can say, you know what? I'm just not doing it. And, and so I, I know for myself, I would have those days a couple times a year where I just would wake up and be like, I can't do this today. And I remember the way I would gauge it for myself would be if somebody said, you either have to go to work today or you'd be fired in that moment, in that space, I would be like, fire me. Like, I just, I felt that like strongly, I cannot do that today. Yeah. So, you know, we can't afford to do that every day, but there are days we all have like that. And I would tell my students, if there's a day where you're just feeling like, I can't do this today, then stay home, stay home. It's not going to be a deal breaker for you in terms of you doing well in this class. You can't do it every day, can't do it every week, but we all have those days and we have to do a better job. And again, ironically, that people think that single people are more at risk of mental health issues and not being able to take care of themselves because they don't have children to take care of them. What we often find is that, uh, especially for women, single women actually have better health, including mental health, because they have the time to take care of themselves. These are women who have the time to go and put themselves first and go to therapy and and exercise regularly and and create a space for themselves where they decompress and that they often, you know, I, myself, I'm a big spa person. Like I will go to a spa every day if I could afford it. And (laughs) there, there, there's just all these other avenues that women have found that they can take the time. They can take a day off because for them, a day off means them doing what they want to do, not meaning I get to take a day off from work because I have to take my kid here and I have to take my kid there and I have to take my kid there for them. Taking a day off means I'm taking it off for me. And so this idea that we're mentally sort of unstable is so ironic because it's nothing further from the truth. That's such a good point. Absolutely. Um, One of my sisters is child-free by choice and single. And I feel like she's steps ahead of me in like her mental health, self-care practices and she's a big inspiration for me to like try and level up my own <laughs> and prioritize that more I think and again what I'm learning from my group of women is that it's okay to be I don't want to be around people today mm. it's okay to say I'm taking a day for myself everybody else leave me alone and the women who are child-free and single they have more space in their their world to do that where if you are living in the same household with someone or you are someone's caregiver, you don't have as much freedom to do that. You can still do that, of course, mm-hmm. but it takes a little more sort of planning. Yeah. I noticed on your website that you are <laughs> working or in 2023, you'll be focusing on interviews for a book. Is that something you want to talk about at all? Well, I'll give you the timeline because I'm trying to give myself an ambitious timeline and um, also knowing things in academia go very slow. So I'm not always in control of that. Yeah. So my goal would be um, I'm done with my interviews. I'm in analysis right now. My hope is to be writing my dissertation, have it sent to the sort of at least start the process of going through the, the, the multiple rounds of reviews it has to go through to finally be 
approved, right? So I'm hoping by this time next year, it'll be in that process. Now, whether I stay in academia solely or not, I still will stay in this space of studying singleness, never married, child-free women. So I would love to do more interviews and then eventually encompass the dissertation work with the continuation of more interviews into a book. And so it's once the dissertation is approved and I'm officially a doctor, then I will start continuing that work. Hopefully somebody will fund me continuing that work, or I will get into a, uh, either a research nonprofit organization or a think tank, but, but this is really the work I want to do. It's the work I feel passionate about. And I just hope that I'm able to continue that. Yeah. Awesome. I, I hope so too. I definitely want to read that book. Um, so I will be following along. I think it's important again, not that I, I I am taking like, uh, all the flowers, but I think it's important. I think to, to put these women's lives in context. And I think a lot of younger women would learn a lot and find beneficial from their lives. Yeah. Absolutely. Cool. And is there any way for people, listeners to follow your work or support your work? What would that look like? I mean, at this point, if you want to follow my work, you can visit my website at www.ichoosefeminism.com. I'm also on Twitter at I Choose Feminism and also on Instagram as I choose feminism. So I try to keep it all kind of consolidated. Yeah. You'll be able to find me under that. And always as an academic and you, you know, you're looking for funding, you're looking for people who will help fund you to go out and interview. My dream goal would be able to do this cross nationally and be able to interview women in India. I mean, can you imagine what we could learn from women in India if, if there are, and I'm assuming there's got to be some who have stayed uh, child-free and in China and in Chile and Iceland. I mean, I would love to be able to go and interview as many women and get these experiences uh, recorded. So again, it's always in academia. It's about, can you do the work? Who's going to fund the work and and who's going to read the work and and have it be accessible. And, And I always, it's important to me to have my work be accessible. That's why I kind of see myself as like the accidental academic, (laughs) like, I'm in that world now. It doesn't mean I will stay there. But while I'm there, I want my work to be where somebody can pick it up and read it and not think, oh, I need to get my dictionary out or I need to get, you know, I need to look up 500 words so I can even read it. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) I, I, I appreciate that. As someone who feels like I often, you know, if I attempt to read academic paper, I do need a dictionary or like 10 internet tabs open. Right. Uh, <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So accessibility is appreciated. That's my hope. Those are my goals. You know, it's, it, we always aim high and uh, I, I try to set reasonable goals for myself and so far have been pretty good at meeting them. So I'm hope yeah. I'll be able to do these as well. Awesome. Yes. And as we wrap up, is there a message you'd like to leave with the listeners? I guess the message is let's be a little more discerning with our media consumption. Meaning that when I see a movie that's depicting somebody single going home for the hall, I'm not going to watch that movie. Like that does not interest me. That is not a story I need to help create buzz around. And if there's something that you feel is talking about women negatively, particularly this group, talking, thinking, creating negative narratives, maybe that's something you don't have to, well, I'm not saying you have to go out and boycott or censor anything, but maybe that's just something that you go, that's not for me. And maybe eventually the people who keep track of what's being watched will realize maybe there's no longer an audience for that. Maybe there's no longer an audience for these kind of movies. Maybe we should be looking at other kind of narratives, other kind of stories. As long as these type of narratives are making money, they will continue to be made. As long mm-hmm. as there's people out there who are feeding into this kind of really narrow idea of romanticism, then, then we will continue to see that. So that's something I think people can do without feeling like they have to go out and you know march 200 miles and <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. That is definitely something that is attainable and 
actionable and that I feel like I'm motivated to myself be more discerning and just like have that lens. So thank you for that. I, uh, just last thing on that. I, I think of that because I made that decision for myself. I don't know. In my early twenties, I think I went to see a movie. There was like a serial killer movie about women being chased and, and held captive and being put in water and raped, you know, like what you often will see. And I remember sitting in the audience and having that distinctive thought going, I'm paying to see this. I just paid $12 to see women being tortured and violated. And why am I paying for this? Why am I paying for this? And, and I said, I'm not doing that again. I am not, I, I do not go to horror movies. I do not go to movies where it's the plot is women being violated and raped and tortured. And I, I just like, why am I putting my money into that? That's not what I care to see. That That's not a storyline I'm interested in. I still love crime dramas. I still love serial killer movies. But if it's just one of those kind of gore focused kind of violence toward women, this is what I, I just, I'm not going to use my money there. That's just not how I want to spend two hours of my day. Yeah. I, I think we can all make those decisions, right? Like, it's just not where yeah. I want to spend. I don't want to spend two hours of my day in that space. And I don't want to spend $20 in that space. So I don't. Right. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much. I I am so grateful to you for not only the work you're doing, but taking the time to have this conversation. Um, I I know I heard you speak on two other podcasts and I just, I ate them up. So um, oh. I will link those too. If people, if you want to hear more uh, conversations with Kim Martinez Phillips, look in the show notes. I will link those other episodes that I've heard you featured on, uh, I believe with Christine Erickson on her podcast with the new legacy radio. And then, um, the spinsterhood reimagined. Yeah. With Lucy. Yeah. Anytime somebody gives me a platform to talk about my work and this topic and how I think it's important. I mean, just let me know on there. Like, I, I think the, the more we talk about it, the more that it gets out there, the more people realize yeah, maybe I have been a little judgy about this group of people. Maybe I should reevaluate. It's all good. It's all good. So yes, I, I'm willing to, I'm cheap. I'm willing to go anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Cool. Well, I look forward then to hopefully hearing you uh, on more podcasts <laughs> <laughs> or platforms. So platforms, yeah. yeah, thank you so much for your time. It's been oh, a pleasure. You're welcome, Anna. Thank you.